Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. So this morning, we're going to do just a kind of quick discussion and set of reactions to this week's inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States and Kamala Harris as vice president. We are going to just quickly talk through a couple of ideas about what we saw this this Wednesday um, and where we go from there. So I want to start us out with one question. Um, and I'll start with you, Lee. What did the inauguration accomplish? What did it accomplish? I don't know. Uh, I wish I had a, a snappy answer here. I mean, I, I guess it gave us a new president and some ceremony. Uh, but I, I mean, I think inaugurations just uh, accomplish uh, giving us a new president. Uh, so I, 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 I have a I really want to know what you think of this, Julia, because I feel like you're the person I want to hear from on this. <laughs> well done, Lee. <laughs> yeah. Very well done. <laughs> right? uh, yeah, good. To, yeah, this. Um, I know, and we're we're talking about Congress. I'm uh, usually I'm following you two, but like Wednesday was my day, presidential rhetoric, all that. Um, so I think inaugurations have a couple of functions. I think one of the functions is to kind of situate the presidency in, in history and an in institutional continuity. And that was something that was especially important this time around for several, for several reasons. One was that everything is so weird just in general with the pandemic. And the other was the, you know, massive disruption to our institutions two weeks before with the Capitol insurrection. And then there's also the fact that Donald Trump's inauguration, which, which I attended four years ago, really broke with that in some ways. I mean, you had a lot of the same kind of trappings, much more so than this week. But like, it was evident that nothing was was normal. And one of the things that was really striking about Trump's inaugural address in 2017 was that it really didn't situate uh, Trump's presidency in history. And that's not surprising. Trump is not a historically oriented person, but it was it was really striking that way. Inaugural addresses usually reference the founders, they reference Lincoln, sometimes they reference other recent presidents, which Biden also did, and acknowledging the some of the other living presidents who were in attendance, um, which did not include Trump. So I think it's that that sense of continuity is really important. I think it also sets a tone for the coming administration, which is often very aspirational. And I don't know if it really bears on anything that happens afterward. But I think that it, it is sort of the first opportunity to do that. And that's the that's kind of I think what was part of the festivities on Wednesday was to really put the country front and center and the party front and center. It was so interesting that it was Biden was kind of not the focal point in a lot of ways. It was a sort of highlighting of a lot of different other characters, a lot of women, a lot of people of color. And I thought that was a really, you know, interesting way to to set that tone. But my my question I think going forward is about the way this presidency is defined in a, a way that's not, you know, is it going to always be defined in reference to, to Trump? So, so that's kind of my viewpoint on what inaugurations need to accomplish and, and what was done on Wednesday. Um, what do you think, James? Well, 
you know, I'm thinking about a lot of different things right now, I think like most Americans, but I agree with you that inaugurations give the president-elect, the president and his or her administration, the opportunity to set a tone or at least try to set a tone to sketch out a vision. There is an audience there, obviously, you know, in the most basic sense, the inauguration, it gave us a new president. It gave us a new vice president. It gave us an opportunity to celebrate what happened. And I think all Americans celebrate in some way, shape or form, even if they're not necessarily uh, supporters of, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Harris is the first female minority vice president in this nation's history, the first female vice president in this nation's history. In a prior podcast, we've uh, discussed the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The centennial of that event was last year. I think it is is extraordinarily fitting uh, for, for her to take the oath of office one year after the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, when it's still front and center in our mind. Uh, Biden referenced this in his speech. He referenced how extraordinary it was to come so far from having women being arrested for demanding the right to vote in Washington, D.C. and put in jail right down the road there in 95 and locked up for asking for the right to vote, which they have today. I think it's also a time if you're if you are a pro ageist, I don't know if such a thing exists, but Joe Biden is the oldest person ever to have taken the oath of office. That is extraordinarily significant too. Some people may think it's good, some people think may think it's bad, but it is an event that I think needs to be acknowledged. Inaugurations, I think, especially in the context of the attack on the Capitol, that tragic attack, are very important because they illustrate just the sheer momentum of our political system. And over time, and while there, and this is, I think, going to get into some of our other conversations about violence and politics and everything else. The bottom line is we have a new administration now, and that inauguration accomplished that transition. It gives people who were not fans of Donald Trump and, and the Republican Party that he led a, a sense of closure maybe a sense of hope for tomorrow. And for those that were fans of Donald Trump, it's an opportunity to be, I think, a little bit more fearful and apprehensive about what's to come. But I think most importantly, most importantly, the inauguration accomplished this simple fact. It gave us something to talk about today on politics in question. I think that's that's really important. <laughs> it, is it you not know, the I... most important thing? Let's just I think we need to keep things in perspective here. Wow. I think that's right. I have a syllabus to finish for Monday. And so not having to write a more extensive script for this was actually really an important piece of my life. Listeners, so, uh, uh, listeners, just pay attention here. Take note. We are honest here on politics in question. <laughs> right. Overly honest podcasting. Okay. But so, so I actually want to ask, you know, a pretty serious question about what happened on Wednesday? I feel like this has kind of been the question, which is, was this a peaceful transfer of power? James, do you want to get started, get us started on that question? Yes, I think it's a my first answer is yes, because there is now a new president in office. And that's that. There was no war. There's no revolution. There was no coup. There was no struggle. Now it gets a little bit more complicated when we juxtapose the inauguration with what happened on Capitol Hill and the tragic events there and that horrific attack on the Capitol. And I think it ultimately depends on how you characterize that attack. While there certainly were 
like really awful elements in that attack. And, and but it wasn't like a, in my opinion, it wasn't and like a very coherent and organized attack with the stated purpose of somehow overthrowing the election and installing Donald Trump as a president for life. Maybe some crazy people in that mob thought they could do that. But if it was a coup attempt, I, it seems to me to be the worst coup attempt in the history of coup attempts. And I don't want to make light of it because I think it was extraordinarily serious and extraordinarily concerning. But ultimately, I think it was just I mean, I think a lot of the people there, they were just they're hooligans. And they thought it was funny, and they and, the, and it's a way of blowing off steam in, in in many respects. And I'm not trying to minimize it. In some respects, I think that's even more horrifying than than some of the other descriptions of what happened on the Capitol. I'm not, not I'm not sure if I'm making sense here, but I don't necessarily link what happened on the Capitol and the attack on it with the inauguration. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would describe it as a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, one, the fact that the entire uh, downtown of Washington, D.C. was closed off and defended by 25,000 troops is not normally what we think about when we think about a peaceful transfer of power. As for for the mob, and yeah, I mean, maybe there were some people there who were just in it for uh, shits and giggles, but, you know, I think there were a, a number of people who were there to do real harm. Uh, and I think most importantly, the sitting president of the United States encouraged them to storm the Capitol. Uh, his lawyer, uh, Rudy Giuliani, encouraged them to and basically said, said that there should be, I think his words were, trial by combat. So to me, a peaceful transfer of power doesn't involve the sitting president and encouraging his supporters to overturn the election by storming the Capitol. It doesn't involve 25,000 National Guard troops. It just doesn't seem like what I think about when I think about peace. Yeah. And Julia, just let me jump in real quick. And, and, I, and I take your point, Lee. I'm not, I'm not sure I agree that Trump thought that he was somehow going to subvert the Constitution. I think if you look at what if you look at Trump's speech, and I think and this is kind of getting us a little afield, but but if you look at his speech and what he said, and I understand you have to take the totality of his rhetoric in office. And and I've in, on this podcast been a critic of, of the president's rhetoric time and time again. But if you look at the speech and what he's saying, he's saying things in the exact same way that an AOC says in November of 2020, that a Jim DeMint says as a Tea Party senator or as someone from the outside. Basically, you have to go and make your voice heard. You have to fight. You have to make them hear you. You have to demand that they listen, et cetera, et cetera. Those kinds of things that people say when they want to, in a very Baumgartner type kind of or Schottschneider type uh, way, try to change the status quo. Now, I agree that electoral college piece is a different angle, and it and it does make this a different question. But ultimately, to Julia's question, was it a peaceful transfer of power? The entire apparatus of the Republican Party accepted on Wednesday that the inauguration was happening. There were no, yes, there were troops there. There's, it's always secured uh, to some degree. This time there's a lot more security there. It was very, in my opinion, who I have very strong concerns about the over-securitization of the American state. 
I think that is very, very concerning. But the simple presence of troops doesn't necessarily mean that we have armed legions of people on the outside that are trying to somehow come in and subvert what's happening. And you have Kevin McCarthy, you have Mike Pence, you have Mitch McConnell, and the entirety of the Republican Party, so far as I can tell, embracing Joe Biden as a legitimate president of the United States. I don't know of no states that are threatening secession right now. Um, you have some people here and there who are upset about things, but and they may be willing to threaten violence to achieve their goals, but they are an incredibly infinitesimal small minority in this country. We have had this in the past. We've also had non, like, peaceful transfers of power in the past. And I don't mean to say they can't ever happen. And I don't mean to minimize the what's happening right now in our nation. But I do think that it was a peaceful transfer of power. So I've sort of gone back and forth about this. I wrote in the, the 538 Live blog that I thought that it wasn't, for mostly for the reasons that have been articulated. And I do think it's, it's important to think about the sort of, you know, what would be the criteria for that? This is where we probably should have, you know, had a comparativist on or something to talk about this, but what the criteria for that and the different pieces of the last couple of months that would uh, weigh against the idea that this was a peaceful transfer of power, the, the troops in DC, the insurrection at the Capitol and the general efforts by the president. And I think the, the critical part of this is that, you know, by the sitting president to try and subvert the election, which got more and more, desperate and thus less and less technical over time. The thing about that that I sort of keep coming back to um, is that the there's sort of on the one hand it's the sort of show of force, right? The, the, ne the necessity of there being some kind of show of force is what made it seem less peaceful for me. But then we think about well, what was the reason for that? And the reason for that is as we've said, because the president of the United States was was calling state level leaders and having them come to Washington and asking them to decertify the results of their states, you know, asking the governor of Georgia to find eleven thousand votes, bringing the state legislators from Michigan to D.C. and that's that's the stuff that actually upsets me in some ways more than, as James pointed out, a relatively small minority of people trying to use violence to you know, to, to disrupt things is the, 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 the power of the American state to use more violence than anybody else could ever possibly muster is not in question. What, what was in question is that we had someone in the white house for four years who could not accept a loss, who did not see himself as an officer of the constitution. I think that that, that is my position on that. And I feel very firmly about that. Um, and so that makes me feel like the, the coup happened, you know, very peacefully four years ago. Um, and that this was a sort of effort to dig out from it. And that's where I'm also reminded of some really smart stuff by um, political scientist Carolyn Holmes, uh, who's a, a scholar of, of nation building in South Africa. And she was, this was a sort of Twitter conversation. And, and, and what she had said is that it's actually important to have kind of myth making around the peaceful transfer of power. And it, it could be important for that to be an aspirational label for what happened on Wednesday. This idea that, you know, I, I've been thinking about it as this idea that, that peace prevailed and that the transfer of power prevailed against a threat. And so it's not really clearly in one box or the other, but that it's, you know, it, it was a struggle over whether that would happen and that the peaceful transfer of power won. But it does make me wonder about what 
you know, a couple thousand electoral college votes, a couple thousand votes in key electoral college states. And we would have been looking at a Trump victory under the rules. And it does make me wonder about the consolidation of that anti-constitutional power in the executive. So that's sort of where, where I'm left. If we've had, everyone's had this really joyous celebratory week and I'm just like in the, you know, still in all, all the dark timelines um, in my head. But if we want to move on to our third question, I, I want to kind of talk about the buzzword of the week, which is unity. So Biden talked a lot about unity in his speech in a way that I thought was really, actually really interesting and nuanced. Um, and there's been a lot of questions about like what will, what will unity mean in a situation in which Congress is controlled by Democrats, but very narrowly and closely. They're still fighting about how power will be shared in the in this 50-50 Senate. So uh, let's let's talk about unity. James, I'll hand it to you. I was I always like to hear politicians talk about unity and the rhetoric typically doesn't align with the actions. I think Biden is sincere. I honestly do. And I think that Biden has a lot of uh, challenges within his own party and within the Republican Party in trying to unify uh, this country. But ultimately, I think that he, like everyone else, including myself, many times I lapsed back into it, have a, a flawed understanding of unity in this nation. Unity is about diversity. It arises out of all of us participating in politics as equals and choosing as equals, as you say, and Lee, you pointed out, which I think is very important, to resolve our differences via politics and debate and deliberation instead of via violence and force and coercion. And out of that process, we then can unify. And too often, and you heard this creeping in in Biden's speech, there's a lot about the truth, the truth. Well, I'm not denying the truth. And I'm not going to I'm not saying that I'm a conspiracy theorist and all of these other things. But the simple fact is that the truth in the civic realm, civic truth, not revelatory truth, not scientific truth, but civic truth, what we as a polity hold to be true. The only way that that can emerge in a self-government of equals is out of the process. It should be informed by scientific truth and all the others. It should be it should be well thought out and reasoned and everything else. And it, it's not just some crazy person can show up and say, hey, the sky is orange. And so therefore, the sky is orange. No, but you have this process. And too often, I think what we see today is that you have this, imagine a circle in your head and the people that are allowed to participate in politics are inside that circle. And when we want to win a debate, we try to delegitimize our opponents and push them outside of that circle. And the way we do it is we say, that's not true. And we just like very definitive and we try to end the conversation. And I don't think that that is necessarily unifying. It's not a, it's not a unifying mentality or sentiment. And then lastly, in a more concrete example of this as well, if you look at Trump, and again, I don't mean to keep coming back to Trump in a way of defending him. I'm not taking, I'm not doing that right now. But if you look at the impeachment of Donald Trump after he's left office, which raises serious constitutional questions, I think we need to come back to on a different podcast and, and, and talk about. But if you look at the effort to, uh, to convict Trump after he is no longer in office, which would be unprecedented in the United States in our history and under the Constitution. During the attack on the Capitol, we heard time and time again from Democrats and also Republicans, Trump be a statesman, put an end to this, try to unify the country, rise above it. That's what statesmen do. Well, it seems to me right now that the impeachment trial 
which ultimately, what are you going to remove somebody who's already been removed from office? You're going to disqualify private citizens from serving in office in the future, even though they haven't been removed and the Senate rules don't really allow you to do that. Like that's not necessarily the best way to set off on a unifying administration in four years. Now, I get that it may be needed uh, because people feel strongly about it and they want a sense of closure and all of these other things. And I know that there are people who disagree with me on the constitutional aspect, and I accept that. And I think that's something we need to talk about. But the simple fact is, and there may be reasons to pursue it, but the simple fact is that impeachment is not unifying right now. Well, you know, there's a lot that I agree with you. Uh, there, James, about you know the importance of diversity in politics um, and the way that truth emerges from a process. You know, I, I think there are certain buzzwords that have important rhetorical uses: unity, truth, compromise, and these are things that, that you know, especially unity and compromise, are things that everybody says they like in the abstract. Uh, we should come together as a nation. We should compromise, but. Things that sound good in the abstract often fall apart in the details. Okay, well, what are the terms of the compromise? Well, what are we unifying around? And you know, this to me is one of the really paradoxes of of democracy. In that, in order for democracy, electoral democracy, to exist, there there needs to be some division. Otherwise, elections are essentially meaningless. Because if the parties are the same and they stand for the same things because everybody agrees, then what's the point of having elections? True unity would be totalitarianism, right? Uh, but at the same time, you know, there needs to be some common shared sense of fairness and process that forms the basis of disagreement. So we have to unify around some set of rules in order to productively disagree. And you know, I think the the challenge you know in American democracy right now, of course, is that we are deeply divided in a extremely binary way, and that makes governing extremely difficult. Now, I think we could be divided in in different ways. I, I think you know a productive division might actually be a divide over. Are we a democracy or are we, you know, an authoritarian state? And, you know, I, I actually, the, Jennifer McCoy, who's a, a previous guest on our podcast, and uh, I highly recommend that episode, actually has a, a new essay out in, in uh, journal Democratization, where she uh, and her, her co-authors write about that in situations of pernicious polarization, that actually a repolarization around basic principles of, of democracy can actually be quite productive. And I think here, when I talk about unifying around the process, what I mean is that we unify around the premise that we have free and fair and legitimate elections in which every citizen counts equally, and then we can disagree over the issues rather than disagree over the process. And this is why I, I'm also uh, you know, a very enthusiastic supporter of H.R. 1, S. 1, uh, the Democracy Reform Bill, which I hope we can devote uh, a whole episode to at some point in the future. But you know, I, I think one of the things that that bill does to me that's extremely important is it basically puts a, a, a standard across the country uh, for what counts as basic rules of democracy and ends this constant shifting of, of you know, 
how do people vote, who gets to vote, how are districts drawn, which, which undermine the fundamental rules of democracy. And that is just poison because, again, you know, democracy depends on a shared sense of rules. And that's what we have to unify around. And we have to unify around that in order to disagree on policy issues. So I think when we talk about unity and we, you know, we have to be clear what principles we are unifying around. And to me, it's the principles that allow us to disagree productively. So I think I agree um, with with you in spirit here, Lee, but I, w- I would take it in a different direction. And I, I thought a lot about this, um, about Biden's not just talking about unity, but his reference to the Emancipation Proclamation, which is not usually something that comes up in inaugural addresses. But the Emancipation Proclamation was a was a document of purpose, right? It was part. It was one of several ways in which Lincoln essentially made the Civil War about slavery fairly late, fairly late in the game. Uh, the Union side had not been very clear about their purpose in the war in that regard, and that was one of the, of Lincoln's ways of making it about slavery and drawing, I think, you know, in my opinion, quite belatedly, drawing a boundary around what can be in the in the contestation for power in the American state. And I think that's, when we talk about unity, we're also talking about purpose. We're talking about, well, what are, what are the shared fundamental values that we all agree on? And that then informs those rules that you're talking about, Lee, about everyone having access to the ballot box. That That is a among other things, a racialized proposition. And that's kind of what Biden was was talking about. And I think that that forces a choice among Republicans. And I agree, like, this is a whole other episode. We should talk about impeachment. And also, you know, we did just did an episode on the future of the Republican Party, but we could probably do a whole other one about I think it really forces a hand among Republicans to to confront, well, there are anti-democratic forces in your electorate and there are anti-democratic forces in your ranks. I think those forces also exist on the left, but the the Democratic Party has been pretty, has you know, not been very shy, I think, about shutting them out most of the time. The Republican Party faces a different kind of dilemma because of the nature of their coalition. And I think it really pushes people, you know, the folks who did show up on Wednesday, the folks who made a, a point of showing their support for the peaceful transfer of power and the notion of legitimate opposition, it really forces them to think about how they can coexist with, with ideas and values that are not compatible with, with democracy. And I think that has to do with the rules, but it also does have to do with white nationalism. I've already gotten hate mail for making comments about white nationalism. So that's where we're at as a country. And I want, I want us to, to be pretty honest and straightforward about that. Julia, just to chime in here, I think excellent points and Lee, excellent points. And to connect the two, if you think about it, the Emancipation Proclamation isn't exactly the most unifying thing in the moment. The 19th Amendment and the effort to ratify it, which Biden also referenced, not exactly the most unifying thing in the moment. And these are periods in the nation's history when the nation is extraordinarily divided and in the former case, actually at war with one another, talking about a non-peaceful transfer of power. And so I think this suggests that there's a temporal element to unity as well in the process as well, that over time, we unify on who gets to be inside this circle and who gets to participate in politics and what are the rules that we need in place to ensure that we can all do so on the basis of equality so that we remain committed in this nation 
to resolving our disagreements being via debate and deliberation instead of violence. So that's gonna, it's really got me thinking about the temporality of politics and how we talk about it and define it over time and, and how that relates to us in a particular moment in time. Well, yeah. Um, and I, I want to add on, Julie, I want to go back to, to what you said. And, and I mean, fundamentally, the, the question is who, who is in the political community and, and who is outside of the political community. And you know, if we can't agree on that, uh, then I think it's very hard to have a democracy if you can't agree on the rules of you know, who, who is included in the political community and who has you know fundamentally a right to vote and participate, uh, and and those are issues that we absolutely have to unify around. And when those issues become the source of partisan division, uh, it fundamentally undermines the process of elections and creates a sense that uh, you know I, I think I think if if there are folks on the right who uh, you know believe that their country is being taken away from them because other people who don't share the color of their skin are allowed to vote, that, that is not a tenable division in uh, a single polity. Uh, so, I mean, absolutely, we have to unify around the principles of who is included in the political community. And you know, I, I just don't know how you can have a democracy if that uh, it is is you know, if if we don't fundamentally agree that everybody should be able to participate equally in in that democracy if uh, if, if they live in this country and if you can unify around that then you can divide about other issues that are more the kinds of things that politics should be about how do we best provide health care for our people how do we best confront the climate crisis how do we best recover from a pandemic those are legitimate disagreements uh, it's not legitimate to say that some people in this country uh, should count as more or count as less just because of who they happen to vote for or more radically uh, what skin pigment they have. Right. I think that, the, I mean, that these are the kinds of questions that what Biden was, was doing in that speech was sort of highlighting that these are the questions that, that need to be confronted. And I don't necessarily know if his speech, an inauguration is not really the time to lay out the roadmap for how those are going to be confronted, but his administration will have to think about it. And I think that's a, that's a great note for us to end on and kind of moving forward. I think we can, we can certainly tell our listeners that we'll be considering these questions too. Um, But for, for today, I think we're going to leave it with our inauguration discussion. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.